see this coming. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and we're returning to something that I haven't done for a while. We're going back to some more Mormon history, so you can either rejoice or be bored out of your mind. I hope you'll forgive me. I have a cold this summer, a lingering cold that I got down in Short Creek that is not going away, which is probably the Lord punishing me for uh, my wickedness, which to that I say fair and deserved. Regardless, I want to do a mini-series this summer about something that I've been wanting to talk about for a really, really long time because it's a part of Mormon history that doesn't often get talked about and it is completely fascinating. We focus most of our efforts as Mormon historians on Nauvoo and Kirtland and Palmyra. But Mormonism was happening in a lot of different areas in the world, and we've tried to cover some of that in the podcast. But what we haven't talked about, or at least focused on specifically, are the Mormons in Boston, Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Mormons. It's actually a huge part of Mormonism. New England really does shape Mormonism. I've been to Boston several times now. I have friends that live there. There's still a very vibrant Mormon community there. It's impossible to go to Boston and not see the influences of the culture and history there on early Mormonism. So we're going to talk about that, particularly the women, because the story of Boston Mormonism really is about women. In fact, the first converts, the first 25 people baptized were mostly women in Massachusetts. So we're going to do a few episodes. The next several episodes that you're going to hear are about the history of Boston Mormons. I brought on uh, Brian Buchanan, who's going to be coming on on a few episodes to talk about some of these early prominent characters. And we're going to try to cobble together the histories of women as much as we can. But before I do that, I want to say that this history is absolutely impossible. It could not be made possible without an incredible historian. I've talked about him before, but Connell O'Donovan is an amazing researcher and historian. He has done so much for early Mormon history, especially finding history on marginalized Mormons like the first African-American Mormons and early gay Mormons and things like that. Um, His research on the Boston Mormons is invaluable. And Unfortunately, Connell has decided uh, to step away from Mormon history as an act to protect himself. Connell is actually very well known in the LGBT community, too, for being an activist. He was one of the first LGBT activists in Salt Lake. He was honored by Equality Utah for for his activism. And he is a Mormon and a gay man. And because of this, because of the November 5th policy, he sort of stepped away from Mormonism and researching it. Um, I don't blame him at all. I think that that's a, a good boundary for him, but I wish there was a way. There has to be a better way that all of us listening can support a man like Connell and his research because, like I said, his research on early Mormons is invaluable. He, I wish we could all give him a million dollars. So if there's someone out there with a million dollars that you want to give to someone, give it to Connell O'Donovan. He is very well deserving of, of your money, your praise, and your kindness. Connell also notes that a lot of the research that he draws from early Boston Mormons, especially in the Lowell area, comes from Martha Mayer, who is the director of the Center for Lowell History. So he credits her as well. I'm going to be linking a bunch of stuff from Connell's site. The majority of what we know does come from Connell's research. The LDS Church also has some stuff on their website, so we're going to be linking to that. And 
you know, I've been bugging Connell to see if there's a way that we could donate to him just because this is all free on the internet. He doesn't have a book that you could buy to support him. And there has to be a way that we can support a man like Connell. Again, the compassionate way in which he does history with such endearment and integrity is is an inspiration to me. So Connell, I'm very grateful to you. And Connell, um, he just like one day sent me a huge like Dropbox folder of all of his research and said, do what you want with it. And um, that's a little overwhelming and I'm very honored to have it. But I think for now, what I want to do is honor Connell in the research and I want to tell these stories on this podcast. So for now, that is what I've decided to do with the research honoring the history of the Boston Mormons. You know, in Massachusetts, we have to remember the context in, of Massachusetts in the 1800s, of course. It was what we would call, I think, now a liberal northern state. It did not look kindly on slavery, which is ironic because I think Boston was one of the first, I mean, Massachusetts was the first colony in New England that had slave ownership. They think somewhere around the time of 1624, there was a man named Samuel Maverick, who we have the first confirmed account of slavery that we know of in the colonies. A lot of the early 17th century slave trade comes from, was based in Massachusetts. So it does have a history there. But by the 18th century, it becomes really, really unpopular. In fact, uh, a large free black population was growing and growing. They say that 10% of the population of Boston were freed blacks by 1752. So in 1752, 10% are freed blacks. It was just really a progressive place to be. And while uh, slavery was still, there was no legislation that abolished slavery until the 13th Amendment in 1865, it was still seen as something that they didn't do. They abolished, uh, they tried to end the practice of slavery through case law. As early as 1781, they were making arguments in court about why slavery was a bad idea. So they just saw themselves as more equitable, working alongside their African brothers. That doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination uh, of course there was. But again, for the United States in the, in the 19th century, this was considered a more progressive area. And that's important because as we get into this history, we're going to talk about a lot of the early black Mormons. And like I said, we're going to talk about uh, some of the women involved, but we also have to talk about some of the men. So Brian's gonna, Brian Buchanan is going to come on and talk about that. Because we have to know, unfortunately, the majority of the, the written record follows the lives of prominent men and not prominent women. And so we're going to piece together what we have. We do know that Mormons first arrive in the Boston area in around 1831, 1832. Connell O'Donovan notes that 25 people, mainly women, are baptized. It's too small to be a branch at this time. But in the early 1830s, they were going into Massachusetts And of course, we're going to talk about Brigham Young because he comes from the state too, but that's going to come later. One of the episodes we're going to do is highlighting Vienna Jockwiss, spelled Vienna Jocks, but Connell points out it's pronounced Jockwiss or Jackwith. She was one of the first Bostonians to join the LDS Church, and I'm going to read what Connell has to say about her. Quote, after she began looking for the primitive Christian church, she heard about the Book of Mormon and requested a copy. After reading it, she was not convinced. Later, she had a spiritual experience in which she saw the Book of Mormon 
And intrigued by this, a 43-year-old single woman traveled alone by stagecoach and canal boat to Kirtland, Ohio. There she met Joseph Smith and was converted to Mormonism by him. She returned to Boston, the solitary Mormon in that city, for almost a year. A number of Bostonians, 17 women and three men, were converted to Mormonism beginning in 1832. Two missionaries, Samuel H. Smith, the younger brother of Joseph Smith, and Orson Hyde, arrived in Boston on June 22, 1832, and four days later baptized four people. On July 1, 1832, they administered the sacrament there for the first time. Orson Hyde reported in his journal that he and Smith, quote, raised up a branch of 25 to 30 members in 1832, but there was no formal structure presiding or presiding elder in charge. And that's going to come into play later on, the fact that this formal structure is a little bit more, shall we say, fluid than it is in, in church headquarters. Back to Connell O'Donovan. The women soon got into a dispute, and the two missionaries had to spend two extra days in Boston at the beginning of December 1832, to, quote, regulate the sisters. Although what structure was put in place to do so is not reported by either Hyde or Smith. Joseph Smith, who had recuperated in Boston as a child after the infamous leg operation, visited Boston briefly in the fall of 1832. Apostle John F. Boynton visited the Boston church in October and November of 1833 and baptized one person, Brigham Young and his brother, so this is where Brigham Young enters the scene. And again, the happenings in Boston are going to impact and affect Brigham Young for the rest of his life. Joseph converted a few people in Boston while there as missionaries in the summer of 1836. Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, and William Burgess also visited Boston in August of 1836 on their way to Salem to search for Spanish pirate treasure reportedly buried in the cellar of a house there. I love that story that they were looking for pirate treasure in Salem, Massachusetts. And of course, you can read more about that in DNC 111. From about September 1836 until March 1842, Joseph T. Ball, and now he's going to be important. We're going to talk about him a few times. Joseph T. Ball was an African-American elder residing in Boston, except for the times when he was on various brief missions in Maine, Connecticut, Iowa, and other parts of Massachusetts. So he may have technically been considered the presiding elder whenever present in the city. Now, this is important when we talk about Massachusetts' ideas of, you know, black Americans at the time. Joseph T. Ball, really, it seems, in the early church, is on par with a lot of the white elders. He's getting called on missions. He's ordained. He's presiding, really, over a branch. And we're going to, of course, get into that. In 1838, Brigham Young and Joseph Young again labored in Boston, and they baptized 17 people. Elder Freeman S. Nickerson arrived in Boston on a mission in May 1841. Elder Nickerson and Erastus Snow, who had just organized the First Salem branch, officially founded the, officially founded the Boston branch on March 9, 1842. Joseph Smith proclaimed on April 8, 1844, and this, of course, is the day after delivering the famous King Follett funeral sermon in Nauvoo, that New York City and Boston would both be made into stakes of Zion. And Joseph says, quote, I have received instructions from the Lord from henceforth, wherever elders of Israel shall build up churches and branches unto the Lord. Throughout the states, there shall be a stake in Zion in the great cities as Boston, New York, etc. There shall be stakes. It's a glorious proclamation, and I reserved it to the last and designed it to be understood that this work shall commence after the washings, anointings, and endowments have been performed here. 
And this is sourced by B.H. Roberts, History of the Church. Connell points out that this would have been a major departure from the current policy of the gathering. However, after Smith's death soon afterwards prevented this from happening and no stakes were formed outside the church headquarters for many more decades. Connell goes on, he says, quote, This was the first time in history that an African-American man formally presided over a Mormon congregation. Wilford Woodruff was opposed to his being branch president, not because of his racial ancestry, but because of his taking sexual advantage of the Mormon mill girls in Lowell. Elder Jacob C. Phelps, Esquire, was also opposed to Ball's appointment, but unlike Woodruff, he stood up publicly and said so. But, quote, Woodruff wrote, Phelps was soon borne down by Sam Brannan and William Smith. This is who Brian Buchanan's going to talk about. We, for you to understand the Mormon saints, you have to understand some of these characters, William Smith and Sam Brannan. So we're going to talk about them too. Back to O'Donovan, he says, quote, Despite his sexual offenses, somehow Ball remained Boston's branch president for some five months, per the religious notices published weekly in The Prophet, which enlisted the branch president and the times and locations of branch meetings in the eastern states. The first appearance of his name of president was on October 12, 1844, less than one week after he proposed to stain and ordained as such. Technically, Benson presided over the whole Boston conference beginning on December 30, 1844. When Parley P. Pratt ordered Ball to go to Nauvoo, this left Benson as branch president. Benson last appears in The Prophet as Boston branch president in April 26, 1845. All right, Joseph T. Ball, we know at the time we have a black freed slave running the church in Boston. He's also running the church with two men, Samuel Brannan and William Smith. Now, I'm going to bring in Brian Buchanan. And we're going to talk about Sam Brannan first. And then our next episode, we're going to highlight some of these amazing Boston women like Vienna Jackwith, because her story is really important. Misha McGriggs is going to come on. We're going to talk about Joseph T. Ball, because his story is essential to understanding how Brigham Young's ideas and doctrines of race were shaped. And then we're going to talk about William Smith, who's also really fun. But just as a side note, and to point out how much I adore Connell O'Donovan in his research, which I will link, he does some really great stuff. For example, he has compiled all the newspaper headlines he could find about Mormons in the area. And so I'm going to read you some of the headlines. And it's important to have a context for how Massachusetts citizens saw Mormons. On October 2nd, 1829, there in the Salem Gazette, there was an article called Golden Bible. Um, some of the other headlines were Mormonites, Mormonism, the Mormon delusion, intelligence respecting Mormonites. Mormonism and smallpox, more about Mormonites, the Mormonites, 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 and and so on. Um, so many great, great articles, anti-Mormon articles. You know, people were getting concerned about these Mormons. Uh, Connell even lists all the anti-Mormons he could find in Boston. So um, there's Oregon Bachelor, who debated Parley P. Pratt in New York in 1838 and published Mormonism Exposed internally and externally. Uh, he also debated George J. Adams at the Marlboro Chapel on October 9th, 1844. Uh, there was a Quaker man named Michael Hole Barton, some Shakers, Elder John Hardy, Boston branch president encountered Hole Barton in Scarborough, Maine in July of 1844, who recounted to Hardy that he had, quote, palmed himself off upon a new branch of our church in the interior of New York until Parley P. Pratt showed up and denounced Barton as an imposter. We, of course, have the famous John C. Bennett, who is from Fairhaven, Massachusetts. 
You can't know anything about Mormonism without knowing his name. Of course, he was one of Joseph Smith's close confidants turned enemies, published an expose to really try to bring Joseph Smith down. There was Alexander Campbell, who was a Campbellite, published in Boston's Delusions and Analysis of the Book of Mormon. Benjamin H. Green, 1832. Matilda Sabin Spalding Davidson, who was a widow of Solomon Spalding, wrote to the Boston Recorder before April 19, 1839, to present the, the Solomon Spalding theory to the public. And her letter was reprinted in numerous newspapers and magazines around the country. And if you know anything about the Spalding theory, you should look it up. It's this idea that Joseph Smith was sort of garnering ideas for his church based on Solomon Spalding. There's John F. Denton, who is an ex-Mormon, becomes a, you know, a very strong anti-Mormon, wrote a bizarre, nearly incomprehensible book called First Volume on the Horrible Enormities of Mormonism, which he levels all kinds of crazy accusations on the Boston LDS branch and their choir. There's Abigail Folsom, who was a New Light Quaker, and she was a radical women's rights suffragette and an abolitionist. We've talked about Abby Folsom before. Emerson called her the flea of the conventions because she had the irritating habit of breaking into men's public addresses at a time when women were not allowed to speak in public. And she actually has, she actually calls out Brigham Young in one of his conventions. Abigail Folsom chants so much that Brigham Young has to sit down because she's so disruptive. And I love this idea of this early, like, radical suffragette shutting up Brigham Young. As we know, Brigham Young was not one to be trifled with later on in life, but early on, he was really not a strong character. He had, as we're going to talk about later, women turning him down for marriages, women, you know, these shrewish women uh, in his mind, these uppity women shutting him down in conferences. And Abigail Folsom argued that Mormonism would never succeed as a religion unless it adopted what she called the, quote, non-resistance principle or non-violent civil disobedience. And she would dominate the conversation in some of these lecture halls that she interrupted. If you want to look at a really interesting woman, Abigail Folsom is definitely worth checking out. At the Massachusetts, according to Connell O'Donovan, at the Massachusetts State Convention of Jeffersonian Democracy in Boston, at the Melodeon, in which Joseph Smith was nominated for president, Abby Folsom stood up and began speaking while the president Brigham Young was addressing the meeting. She also made animal noises and was generally disruptive. Another young man in the gallery began making loud, rowdy remarks, and the police were called in, but they were mobbed, assaulted, and beaten badly. Uh, one policeman was said to be hurt very badly by Heber C. Kimball, but the meeting was soon broken up. There were other ex-Mormons there that became very bitter about the saints. John Hardy, he was excommunicated in October 1844 for calling William Smith, Joseph Smith's younger brother, George J. Adams and Sam Brannan, whoremongers and exposing their erratic sexual behavior with the women at the Boston Conference. And we're going to talk more about that. That's going to be a teaser because Sam Brannan and William Smith get the Boston saints in quite a bit of trouble. So anyway, Connell O'Donovan has a list. There's so many more anti-Mormons, but it's so fantastic. But for this episode, we're going to bring in Brian Buchanan. I'm going to let him talk about Sam Brannan and the life of Sam Brannan, because we need to start to understand that. And then we're going to talk more about these Boston saints and hopefully get an idea of what was going on in Massachusetts and how it shapes Mormonism. Okay, I'm bringing back one of my favorite people, Brian Buchanan. Brian, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. Nice to be back again. So, Brian, for those who are just tuning in or who are very wicked and have not gone in order like they should 
be going. Tell us who you are. So my name is Brian Buchanan. I work at Benchmark Books in Salt Lake and have lots of research interests that consume much of my free time. So uh, I'm very interested in modern fundamentalism, um, very interested in 19th century polygamy and many, many other topics. So as you may have known, I've been on a couple times talking about different things that interest both Lindsay and I. So fun to be back again. And can we talk about what we did yesterday? We absolutely can talk about what we did yesterday. We got to tell people because I had no idea. So let me just set this up for you. I think that I know Mormon history pretty well, right? I, f- I feel like I'm pretty plugged in. So Brian sends me this note and I thought he's saying, hey, I've got this little tour of a house that Wilford Woodruff was living in or something. I was like, oh, perfect. I like Wilford Woodruff, you know, early president of the church. And we show up and it wasn't Wilford Woodruff at all. In fact, it was this glorious Mormon museum that I never heard of. Yeah. So I, I live in Bountiful and I had heard of the Wilford Wood Museum. Um, I had a vague idea of what was there and I knew it was close to my house. So when we moved here, we went on a, a walk at night and went right by it. I mean, it's, you know, two blocks from my house. So after I saw that, I thought, okay, got to get in there. But it's scheduling a tour is not super easy, and it took a while. What actually happened is the lady that schedules the tour came into the bookstore, and the museum came up somehow, and I said, man, I'd, I'd love to go there, but I just I don't know how to get in. She says, oh, well, I'm the lady that schedules the tour. And I thought, perfect, we're in. So, so yeah, man. so to clarify, it's not Wilford Woodruff. It's the Wilford C. Wood Museum uh, from the Wood family, which I also am related to, and... It's a family-owned museum that has all kinds of amazing... It has a pretty amazing collection. But how did you know on the outside that that was a museum? It looks like a fortress. So I, I'd heard of it, and um, I'd seen a picture of where I actually thought all the stuff was kept, as we learned not actually where it was kept. That's a very unique building. And so the second we walked by it, I recognized it from the picture and said, yep, there we go. That's that's our guy. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I got to sit in uh, Emma Smith's rocking chair that she had in the mansion house, and they claim to have the Joseph Smith Jupiter talisman and and original manuscripts of the DNC and things like that. So it's their collection is bananas how great it is. But like you said, it's not easy to get into. In fact, I don't even know. Do they have a website? They do. And as I recall, it seems like I called the phone number on the website, but I could never get a hold of anyone. And that's why I was just kind of stumped until I ran into the lady that that does the tours. So worked out well. Yeah. Well, I do know that they are looking always for donations. They're a 501c3. So uh, that probably wouldn't hurt by way of getting a tour if someone wanted to make a donation. But it's definitely, if you're uh, interested in Mormonism at all, it's it's worth checking out it. Their collection is insane. And I, I don't know how else to say it. So Brian, thank you for getting us that tour yesterday. That was lovely. Oh, man, did we have a good time? <laughs> we really did. Um, okay, so but that's not why we're here today. We're going to talk about Sam Brannon. And I have to give a shout out to Joe Geisner, because Joe Geisner, who's also been on the podcast. One of the things I love about him is Joe Geisner lives in California. And so he has gotten me in the habit of saying that I live in Brigham Zion and he lives in Brannon Zion. So th- this is my shout out to to Joe Geisner living out in Brannon Zion. And we're going to talk about who Sam Brannon is because he's a big deal, but you don't often hear about him in Mormonism. 
And that was kind of by design. Um, as we'll talk about, he had very conflicted opinions on his Mormon past and went out of his way at times to downplay, if not erase his Mormon past. So yeah, there's a reason why that happens. Well, let's get into that as part of this little mini series we're doing on Boston Mormonism, because Boston Mormonism has a huge impact on Mormonism in general, but it's also something else we don't talk about. And Sam Brannon is one of the key characters. So we're going to start with him to sort of lay it out. And then we're going to branch out into some other important characters. And I'm going to cover some of the women in the Boston community as well. Yeah. Before we get into anything, I want to make sure that we credit our our sources here. So two things that I really drew on in, in piecing this all together was one, Connell Donovan's research on his website Connell is incredible. Without him, the story of Boston Mormons would be really, really difficult to flesh out. So his research is great. And then also Will Bagley composed a documentary history on Brannon called Scoundrel's Tale. That is excellent. So those were kind of the two main resources that I used to, to talk about Brannon. And we'll link to that. And Connell's website, uh, Connell is a treasure to this community. And he actually, for this series, he sent me a bunch of his personal files. So we'll, you know, we'll be getting into those too. But I can't say enough about him. I wish there was a way that we could just give all our money and praise to Connell because he's a treasure to this community. And same with Bagley. Bagley's done a lot of work uncovering things that other historians haven't wanted to talk about. Yep. Both are, are, are wonderful historians and uh, have done some great work. So, well, the the question of who is Sam Brannan is a tough one. Uh, Will Bagley in Scandal's Tale notes that he was, quote, a man of many contradictions and a puzzle to his contemporaries. And then he goes on to say that, quote, his papers usually portray him as a hero, but it is my judgment that it is impossible to chart this rake's progress without concluding that he was, even by the standards of his time, a scoundrel. So it's he's a tough one, and uh, I mentioned earlier he you know he tended to downplay his Mormon past, and that's that's one tricky part. But he would exaggerate. Uh, Will notes that sometimes Brandon's tales are quote encrusted with legend. So teasing out the truth from exaggerations is not always easy, but we'll do our best tonight. I love it. So, and and I think that people are going to recognize maybe parts of history that they didn't realize were attributed to Mormons. And and that's how when I first encountered Sam Brannan, I was like, wait, that's the same guy that did all of these things. So walk sure. us through it. Start start at the beginning. Yeah. Well, it, just like you said, my friend that came with us on the tour last night, I mentioned that we were going to talk about Brannan and he lived in San Francisco for a while. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've been on Brannan Street. So yeah, yeah, there really is kind of the California Sam Brannan and then Mormon Sam Brannan. So we'll we'll hit both of them. But um, so Brannan was born in 1819 in Saco, Maine, and Saco, of course, is famous because of our old buddy Jacob Cochran. So he's up from where the Cochranites were were living and and uh, thriving there. He's the youngest in the family. His father had remarried, and so he was 64 when Sam was born, and. Uh, their relationship is tricky. Uh, you know, some sources talk about how Sam just loved and idolized him. And then other sources, maybe it wasn't such a great relationship. But at any rate, you know, if your dad is 64 and you're born, it's going to be a different relationship than, than most. 
And as Sam grew up, the family was universalist, and his father seemed to be fairly interested and welcoming of other religious ideas. And so in 1832, Samuel Smith, Joseph's brother, and Orson Hyde come through, and they baptize Sam's sister, Mary Ann, and very influential brother-in-law, Alexander Badlam. And uh, it's not totally clear how much Sam himself would have been listening and picking up that early. Uh, a year after of those baptisms, they moved to Kirtland, and a biographical sketch written late in Sam's life indicates that he was probably baptized in Kirtland as a teenager. So um, while they're in Kirtland, as kind of a foreshadowing of some of his later career, he was an apprentice at both the Evening and Morning Star and the Messenger and Advocate. Those are the two Mormon newspapers in Kirtland. And during the Kirtland years, he either lives at the Joseph Smith house for a while, or he's there enough that it kind of seems like he lived there. Um, Joseph Smith III was young. He was, you know, he would have been just a toddler when they moved there first. But as he grew older, he remembered Sam being there quite a bit. Um, we don't really know much about the Kirtland years. The next time Sam pops up, he's actually in New Orleans. So he goes there with a brother. They buy a little printing press and they issue a literary gazette. But the brother dies and Sam's kind of on the road again. He gets north. He makes it to Indiana where, you know, if you listen to Sam's story, remember, encrusted with legend, he started and worked for all these newspapers and and. Who knows the truth of all that, but certainly newspapers were a big deal for him. And once his brother-in-law and his sister moved to Missouri, he goes through there and visits them. But his connection to Mormonism throughout all his kind of formative years is, is very vague. We have no idea if he really believes, if he's really connected at all, until... 1843 is when he, he really engages Mormonism. So at that point, brother-in-law is on a mission, and Sam joins him for part of the time. And uh, while they're out in the mission field, he writes to Wilford Woodruff, and I have to read the beginning of the letter because it's amazing. It says, Dear Brother Woodruff, my ears being constantly saluted with the onward progress of this glorious kingdom of the 11th hour dispensation, through the untiring struggles and faithful perseverance of the servants of God in Europe, as well as in America, and that too through the medium of your respectably conducted periodical that comes, as it were, like a heavenly messenger, holding upon its pages the intelligence of the future glory and reward of that servant that shall be found laboring when the Lord again shall visit his vineyard, induces me at this time to trouble you with a short sketch of the increase and prosperity of the kingdom of our God in this part of his vineyard. And this is great because, it, you know, it's a great example of Sam's flourish and just the obnoxiousness of letters at that time. And you, you kind of want to slap him and say, hey, if you could stop making out with yourself for two seconds and just talk like a normal person. No, no, you hold on, sir. I happen to love the flamboyant nature of 19th century <laughs> writing. It's so funny because we're used to how history and things are written now that when you go back and read their correspondence, it's, it was just such a different world. Letter writing was, was truly an art. And man, they they had fun with it. So um, one of the interesting and kind of mysterious pieces of the letter, he mentions that he met up with Elder Ball. 
And that is interesting because it's very likely Joseph Tebow who we'll certainly talk about um, more during the, the Boston episodes here. Um, so after this, this mission concludes, Sam is called to the east. And this is really where Sam becomes prominent, is, is back east. So he arrives in New York sometime early 1844. And it seems that not long after he gets there, he meets and marries Anne Elizabeth. She went by... It's my guess is because her middle name is Elizabeth. It's spelled like Lisa, but I'm guessing she pronounced it Liza. So we'll go with that. So anyways, Liza Corwin. And just as a, a side note to what we'll talk about later. Um, so his mother-in-law, Fanny moves in with them. And she says that she eventually had to um, ask William Smith to quit visiting them because quote, his conduct was not in accordance with her ideas of propriety. So interesting household sounds like, <laughs> but this is not Sam's first marriage as it turns out. Um, there seems to be pretty, a, a pretty good consensus with historians that Sam had early married a woman named Harriet Hatch. When, where, anything. These are, these are all wonderful questions and no one has any answers. Um, Connell O'Donovan goes for 1836 as a marriage that they had a child, but then separated shortly after. The Joseph Smith Papers people and their sketch of Brannon suggest 1841 in Ohio. Uh, and you're talking knows? about his marriage to Liza or no, to, to the Hatch? No, this earlier marriage to Harriet Hatch. Okay. So seemed to be married, maybe with a child, but we know nothing about her. We know really nothing more about the marriage. So uh, immediately, Sam's uh, relationships with women are complicated, often don't last very long, and sadly, not too much details about them. Now, but, she doesn't, um, the wife, the Hatch wife doesn't show up on the census for the Boston Mormons. Yeah. Well, see, if you go with, see, that would, well, I guess really either option, either earlier on in 1836, which would put him... Probably in Kirtland, but may even have been, as I mentioned, when he was down in New Orleans. So in either case, it seems like she wouldn't have made it east with him. And even with the later date from Joseph Smith Papers in 1841 in Ohio, probably doesn't make it with him east. So, yeah, she certainly doesn't show up in Boston, that's for sure. So if there is a marriage, yeah, doesn't last very long. And wow, yeah, we know nothing about it. So, yeah. So he, he marries Liza there in New York. It seems like the mother-in-law had a boarding house. She was a widow, and it seems like they were reasonably well off. It's very interesting. Later in uh, California, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but she shows up in, oh, geez, now I forgot who desired it was. It was in one of the Life Writings of Frontier Women series, but um, she was pretty involved in the society out there. So she seems to be, you know, kind of a, Upper crust society woman, um, so you know fairly well off family. Um, so we got Sam out there in New York, back in Nauvoo at the time. So this is early 1844. This is when they start the Joseph Smith presidential campaign. So they they fan people out across the country to campaign, and they start newspapers. So New York, they start a, a paper called the Prophet. And initially, William Smith, Joseph's brother, is the editor, 
But Sam has a very active role and will fairly soon transition into the editor. Um, he's apparently a very captivating speaker while he's there. He'll speak at meetings all the time. And what's interesting, I had to remind myself a couple of times, he's only 25 at this point. So, you know, you think about all these things he does. Um, he's still very, very young. Um, interesting side note about him. He apparently had, had malaria. I mean, between living by the river up north and both down in New Orleans, not too surprising. Uh, one associate described him as, quote, a sallow, cadaverous, hard-featured man debilitated by a long attack of Western fever. And then he said he had a hard time standing up to do newspaper work all day. So it took a toll on him, it sounds like. Yeah, my understanding was he contracted rheumatism as a child, or I think he was uh, really close to his older sister. That's what Bagley says. Yes, yes, yeah, that's the, the, the Marianne that's baptized. Yeah, she... Um, Bagley goes so far as to say that she probably raised him. So yeah, throughout yeah, that life, was my impression were... too. And he was kind of sickly, um, and yeah. so he relied a lot on his brains over his brawn at this at this time. Definitely, yeah. See, that'll be a good contrast with William, who uh, he was a big dude, and he didn't mind throwing his weight around. So yeah, he definitely seemed to be a sickly guy, and and uh, yeah, he, his his words are what he'll use. So this is the point where we play the final countdown because here comes the crazy. Late 1844, after Joseph Smith's death, Wilford Woodruff, not to be confused with, with Wilford C. Wood, as we've mentioned, called on a mission to England. And on the way out, he checks up on the branches out in the east. And he starts to hear some stories. And luckily, we have the letters that he wrote back to Brigham Young in Nauvoo reporting on all of this. So there's allegations that William Smith and some of the others have pocketed donations for the Nauvoo Temple. But the most serious and the one that's really going to cause the problems is what Wilford Woodruff calls the kissing women's spiritual wife doctrine. <laughs> that makes me laugh. And he I, starts, I think we should rename it. I like it. Well, that's, I mean, polygamy, yeah, that's all well and good. But that, that just doesn't have the appeal as, as kissing women's spiritual wife doctrine. Yeah, that, that cracked me up. Um. And, I mean, you have to remember that we're, we've got kind of two centers here. We've got this, these people here in the east, and then, but we still have headquarters in Nauvoo. And Joseph Smith has been murdered by this time, but we're still under fight club rules where polygamy is concerned, right? You, the first rule of, of celestial marriage is you don't talk about celestial marriage. <laughs> we're, we're still denying it publicly. Um, so, you know. Well, and isn't, I mean, as far as Brandon goes, he got married to Liza in 1844. So they're mm -hmm. still somewhat newlyweds when this is they happening. They are. Yep. And uh, dates of, of all the marriages are pretty tough to come by, but it's all bang, bang, bang. And, and sadly, we have nothing from Liza during, uh, we really don't even hear anything from her until much later. So we can assume some things, obviously. I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine she was overjoyed with it. But, yeah, it would be really nice if we had something from her talking about what's going on with her during this period. Well, and first, let's give some context. So Boston is far away enough from where the church headquarters are that it's Mormonism 
And it's got William Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, and a lot of similarities. But in a lot of ways, they're also on their own, right? So they're hearing doctrines through letters like Wilford Woodruff. And then they make their own interpretations. Yeah. They very much are on their own. And the, the snail mail component of it will be huge later on because it's tough to get info back and forth. And if it's something that is urgent, it's impossible. So they, yeah, they very much are left to do things on their own and uh, they don't mind that they're, they're, they're okay with that because they've, they've got some different ideas about some things. And I mean, this is a serious breach of protocol to be openly, not only preaching kissing women, spiritual wife doctrine, but practicing it. Well, and let's yeah. throw in one more th- wrench that I think that I'm going to talk about in another episode. But at this time, around this time, um, Brigham Young, who is from Massachusetts, is what just went through a really public trial for, I think the charges were adultery. Was that yeah, with Mary with, Angel? Yeah, with uh, Augusta Adams Cobb. Uh, yeah, and, that's right. Augusta Adams yep. Cobb. So mm-hmm. that was happening. And that was a huge embarrassment to Brigham Young because this is at a time when plural marriage is supposed to be secretive. So he's being accused of adultery publicly. And it's really impacting the way that people are viewing Mormons in the state. Definitely. Yeah, that was that was one of the most public cases and definitely blew it up in the press. So yeah, the the it's harder to to, to keep to fight club rules when the press aren't playing along. Um it's it seems to be pretty clear that William Smith is the source of the polygamy stuff. Um it's possible George Adams, who's one of the leaders along with with Brannon and William Smith, he's a possibility too. He'd been in Nauvoo and was fairly well connected, but William is probably the source. He had married one plural wife in 1843. And so, yeah, he seems to be where it's coming from. Um, as, as Wilford starts investigating it more, he hears that Brannon has performed a ceiling for time and eternity and he gets to investigate this even further when he runs into William Smith in a meeting in Boston and Wilford records in his journal, a fantastic exchange. So it goes, I meaning Wilford asked how brother Brandon came to be marrying people for eternity. He says, I appointed him to do it. And the meaning here, I think is that William had authorized Brandon to do it. Wilford objects. His administrations are not legal. Yes, they are. Any elder can do it that has the power to marry at all. Then Wilford comes back. It is a right exclusively belonging to the Quorum of the Twelve or the President of the the Quorum, not legal with those who are not endowed. And then William comes back. That has reference to exclusive privileges and not to sealing a man to his wife for eternity for any elder can do that. So Wilford hears this and he's got some serious concerns because in Nauvoo they had you know, as we know, they, they couldn't totally keep it under control in Nauvoo, but because they were centralized somewhat, they could kind of keep their arms around all of it. But over here, where they have no oversight, they can kind of do what they want. And so uh, Woodruff is concerned. And uh, while he's in Boston, Woodruff discovers that 
Um, so, so, so I've mentioned them already now. So William, Sam Brannon, and George Adams are kind of the unofficial presidency there. So they have replaced John Hardy as the branch president with Joseph T. Ball. And he's such a fascinating character because his father is of African descent. So Ball is probably the first um, black man to be ordained high priest and certainly first one to oversee a congregation. And we're going to talk about this on another episode because Connell O'Donovan, the historian that we were talking about earlier, really ties a lot of what's happening with Joseph T. Ball and his public trial to some of Brigham's later ideas on race and in the theology. It's a really interesting theory. Definitely. Yeah, you get this uh, this guy named William Appleby that is there in the Boston area and writes back to Brigham saying, eh, "What's what's going on here? You know, we got we got Ball here. He's over a congregation. What's the deal?" So yeah, the Boston definitely seems to be a key factor in how Brigham will approach the race question. So yeah, definitely Boston's important for lots of things. Um, when they replace Hardy, it really blows up on him because Hardy isn't willing to keep quiet. So they have a church court and Brandon almost gets Hardy excommunicated, but doesn't get enough votes. And so then witnesses come up and start telling some tales. And one of those that tries to go after Brandon and company is a guy named George Wallace. We got to remember him because he'll come up later, but he'll testify that George Adams has been cohabitating with three women, and it just says W asterisk 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 W asterisk 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 and B asterisk asterisk so on, and that was interesting because it sounds a lot like how John C. Bennett would describe women in his exposés. He would just do the first initial and, and asterisks. And this last name, starting with a B, we don't know who it is, but Connell makes an interesting case that this was Liza, Sam Brannon's wife. So there's enough spaces with asterisks to fit. And so he hypothesizes that maybe we've got wife swapping going on here. Who knows? But very odd situation. Um, George Adams is accused of marrying a plural wife. And so then he takes her and another woman into a private room and, quote, swore them into the secrets of a lodge, which secrets were not to be revealed under the penalty of their lives, and then told them that they knew more than the whole church in New Bedford. So not only do we have polygamy here, but it sounds very much like the early endowment that they're um, spilling the beans on that as well. So so uh, yeah. I want to point out when you read sort of the details of the scandal. So first of all, I don't know if you said this or not, but but Brandon was editor of a little paper called The Prophet, where I think I think you can find some of it scanned online. Um, it's something that I didn't know about, but he had written and published this paper for a short time, and then he's embroiled in this huge controversy. And what I think that um, it reminds me of is later on during the manifesto period where you have a real disconnect between how certain church leaders interpret the doctrine and social pressure and how others interpret it differently. And there's is a struggle of 
public accusations versus private. And I really see this happening there. Oh, absolutely. That's, it becomes increasingly difficult with all the rumors going around to keep doing the public denials. And I mean, here we've got church members blowing the whistle, not, you know, it's not Thomas Sharp in the Warsaw signal who's trying to blow the cover, but I mean, this, these are Mormons versus Mormons here. So that makes it even uglier. Um, yeah, so definitely some, some parallels there, I'd say. And during this trial, William Smith is very much in the spotlight, too. Uh, a woman comes up and testifies that she took his stained sheets to the laundry. So William's got his own problems. And then this new branch president, Joseph T. Ball, is apparently a guy after William Smith's own heart. Woodruff says, quote, Elder Ball has taught as well as William Smith the Lowell girls, so Lowell was fairly close to Boston, that it is not wrong to have intercourse with the men what they please, and Elder Ball tries to sleep with them when he can. Now, who does that sound like? <laughs> I mean, this is this is the John C. Bennett I lines think, of... I think the issue Ball. is, though, that, you know, Joseph T. Ball is African-American. Yep. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that... All throughout this early period, especially in that region, it didn't seem to be an issue. And, you know, had this this William Appleby not raised the issue pointedly with Brigham Young, who knows how differently things could have turned out. So, yeah, it's a very interesting mix of race and sexuality and all sorts of stuff. Um and all during this time, in the background, we've got a, a really ugly and protracted legal case. So William Smith, who was never one to not stir the pot, accuses this guy, Benjamin Winchester, of having been complicit in Joseph and Hiram's deaths. Pretty serious charge. Winchester goes to court with William on slander charges. And then Brannon tries to get Williams back. And so he gets added to the charges. And uh, so there's, there's fines and there's court appearances. And so the whole time they're fighting all sorts of battles on different fronts and it, it gets complicated. And so Wilford Woodruff steps back, sees all this stuff that's going on and he's got to leave to England. So he writes one last letter to Brigham Young and he says, we really, probably ought to replace Brannon and the prophet that you mentioned. Uh, they really would like that to better serve their interests of the direction the 12 are taking. So he says, we really, we got to do something here. And so the decision is to send Parley P. Pratt to take over. Um, but interestingly, he lets Brannon stay on as editor of the prophet. However, back to our snail mail discussion here. Brannon and George Adams have been excommunicated back in Nauvoo and Brigham Young had published a notice there. So listen to this quote, their conduct has been such as to disgrace them in the eyes of justice and virtue. And we cannot and will not sanction men who are guilty of such things as we have every reason to believe that they have been from the most indubitable testimony. We have for some time been unwilling to believe the foul statements made concerning them, but the nature of the testimony now adduced compels us to believe that the statements are but too true. 
and that under the sacred garb of religion, they have been practicing the most disgraceful and diabolical conduct. So Woodruff's letters had their effect. And so Brannon has no idea that he's even been excommunicated. So he continues. He's the editor of the prophet, speaks in meetings. And for a little while, things just continue on like normal. But William then comes back to Nauvoo and the 12 want to meet with him. And he goes to bat for Brannon, has his back. And so Brannon is now reinstated. So Brannon has now been excommunicated, reinstated, still has no idea that any of this has happened. No, no wait, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Doesn't Wilfred Woodruff at this time, he's not really in on the plural marriage gig yet because wasn't his first plural wife taken in 1846? Am I wrong about that? Mm, I want to say that he'd married one. Give me like yeah. two seconds here. Let's just, let's just fact check ourselves. I think... Yeah, let's see here. Wilford. Okay, you're right. Yep, good call. April 1846, um, Marianne Jackson. That was his first plural wife. So That was his first, first plural wife. Now, I can't um, recall if he knew about the practice or not. I'm pretty sure. He he had been, I mean, he goes to, to Britain with the rest of them early on, but then he comes back and he's... He's on Nauvoo pretty regularly, so I just think what what I've noticed about Wilfred Woodruff and you know some historian that knows him better could correct me if I'm wrong. He at, at this period I see a lot of pearl clutching from him. Like he seems so flabbergasted by the behavior in Boston and and very um, what's the word I want uh, passionate about policing it sure. almost. So I I just don't know what that's about. It it just seems like a early development for him. Yeah, my reading of it wasn't necessarily that he is, well, he's shocked, but I would say not shocked by polygamy. It's just that it's there and outside the oversight of the 12. So his concerns are more about authority than propriety? I think so. Okay. And it will be more of a concern with William because he's an apostle. And we'll see that when he comes back to Nauvoo and they have the big you know, can William be the, the patriarch to the church question? That's really a, a very pointed concern that's brought to the surface is a challenge to authority. So my, my sense with Wilford is it's similar. It's, it's not necessarily that he's learning about polygamy. It's just where and how it's happening is my sense. Okay. Got it. So, but there's outrage still the same, right? I mean, those letters are really interesting to read. And Oh yeah. I mean, if, I'm surprised that we don't hear more about Boston Mormonism because this is really like a juicy, salacious part of early Mormon history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, I, I told my brother what we were going to talk about, and I said, you have like these similar developments. I mean, you know, it's it plays out kind of how it does in Nauvoo, but it's just like the second center of of activity there. So, yeah, Boston is huge. And again, we have to recognize all the work that Connell has done there because he is, he's pulled all these threads together and they're incredible stories. I, we, you know, we've pulled out some of the, uh, the threads, but yeah, the race question is, is absolutely huge in Boston. Polygamy, uh, yeah, we've got all sorts of 
of key themes in the development of Mormonism that are big. And it's kind of fun in Mormon studies that we're headed down that road. We're interested not just what's happening in Nauvoo, but what's going on other places. So, yeah, Boston's going to receive a lot of attention down the road, I would say. Good. It needs to. So, so yeah. he doesn't know he's excommunicated. He still yeah. keeps going on with his, his shtick. Yeah. And then he hears about it. He's like, oh, geez, I, we got to take care of this. So he comes back to Nauvoo. And they pull him into a meeting with the Quorum of the Twelve and investigate the charges. So remember George Wallace from a little bit earlier. They bring him in to testify what he knows regarding his sister, Sarah, and Branna. So this from the, the meeting. Brother Wallace said his sister came to his house in New Bedford, told him Brother Brannon had waited on her, his sister, Sarah, one Sunday. She stayed at home. Brother Brannon stayed at home. On the edge of the, there's a blank here. <laughs> On the edge of the bed, Brannon accomplished his desire and went into the kitchen. Um, she was dissatisfied. William Smith sealed them up. It worried her to think she must be Brannon's. Brother Pratt told her the sealing was not according to the law of God. She went into consumption and died. So she dies like two months before this meeting. Then going on. Wallace wrote to Brother Pratt about Brannon that unless he repented, he could not be crowned in the celestial kingdom. She said her sickness was occasioned by what had passed. William Smith acquainted with Sister Wallace at Lowell of Poor Health. Brannon asked Smith if he had any objection to marry them. She manifested strong attachment for Brannon. And then, this is apparently William speaking, I married them, did not consider he was under any obligation to anyone else, married them by all the authority he possessed for time and eternity and had a right so to do as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Father Freeman Nickerson preached that if anyone should get a hold of his skirts or anyone else on the spiritual life system, they would go to hell, and she believed it. Sister Wallace wrote, wrote Brannon, upbraiding him with the humbug and charging me, maybe William, with assisting Brannon. President Young said since Sister Wallace had gone home, a.k.a. had died, we could throw the mantle over the hole and shudder the subject. William Smith said he felt interested in the subject and wished the council, if they chose, to say whether he had a right so to do, whether he had a right to marry Brannon and do what he had done, or whether he was to be rowed on a rail and put down or not. Quite a time for him. President Young said he was satisfied with what William Smith did in the case of Brannon in marrying him to Sister Wallace. So... Lots of things to unpack there. I mean, again, we see that William is claiming that as, as an apostle, he can seal people in plural marriage whenever and wherever he sees fit. We see that clearly women not treated well here. I mean, this, I mean, this, this scene on the edge of the bed, Brandon accomplished his desire and went into the kitchen. I mean, that's about as telling a statement of how, women were treated there as you could possibly come up with. Um, but it, I thought it was interesting too that. And let's sorry, point out, me. sorry, let's point out yeah. that these women at the time are being talked about. Their names are being thrown around in Boston society. I mean, Sam Brannon was involved in some democratic party scandals too. Mm -hmm. He was stirring up trouble. So like you said, these women, it's not like, uh, this is just a small little Mormon rumor mill. People knew about this and some oh, yes. of these women's lives could be ruined forever. 
but this woman had died, so <laughs> who cares, right? I mean, she's gone. Let's just move on. I mean, it's a it's a very cavalier attitude as to a woman who gets sick and says that this nonsense of Brannon had worsened it, and then she dies. And we can just throw the mantle over it, right? We don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it's that's a that's a pretty disturbing window into the attitudes of the time. So, um, and then Brigham now reports this meeting to Pratt in New York. <laughs> Again, he says, on the whole, we did not find matters in relation to Brother Bannon, Brannon's conduct so bad as has been reported. The difficulty between him and Brother Wallace was satisfactorily adjusted. So <laughs> he's good with with Brother Wallace. As long as Brother Wallace is okay, we can... And inasmuch as the principal accuser is now dead, we have concluded to let it rest and have restored Brother Brandon to full fellowship and confidence. So Sam's back on the team now. Good for Sam. This I found interesting. So Sarah Wallace, the woman in question here, had apparently confided this to a friend back in Boston at the time. Guess what happens to him? William and Sam Brandon had him excommunicated. So uh, if you wanted to blow whistles... Good luck, because uh, you weren't going to get very far. So as far as Sam is concerned, things after this episode calm down pretty dramatically. And um, Sam's attention now goes toward putting together the emigrant company that sails to California on the Brooklyn. And Sam was astute, so he, he can read the handwriting on the wall. So after this meeting, he... Breaks ties with William. He'll denounce him in the prophet. And William, of course, will accuse him of betrayal. Big surprise. And then, at least for this period of time, he will ally himself with Brigham Young. And so, sails to California. Wait, can we uh, foreshadow a little bit, too? Um, I don't know. Have you have you any research on Lansford Hastings? Oh, good old Lansford. Yeah. <laughs> So he knows, so Brandon knows him in 1845, and he's this famous adventurer that's, I think, involved in the Donner Reed party, too. He is pretty much responsible for causing it. He's the one that pitches this great cutoff through the salt flats that saves you all sorts of time. Yeah. And, and I only bring him up just because I think that he has an influence, in my opinion, on Sam Brandon's shift from like newspaper man to this wild adventure um, sort of mountain man. Uh, what do they call it? Not a mountain man. What are they? Explorer? Yeah. I mean, he's he's going to become Mr. Goldfields and Mr. Entrepreneur. I mean, yeah, he California Sam Brandon is very different from Mormon slash New York, Boston, Sam Brannan. Yeah. And, and definitely he, he makes some connections there. Um, you know, he's, he's exploring what's California's going to be like. So yeah, he, he hooks up with Hastings and guys like this and there's definitely a change in him for sure. Yeah. Um, so as they get to California, uh, you've got two problems for Brannan. First, you've got the Mormon battalion ends up there and a lot of guys will stay and Brannan you know, he'd been kind of the guy there in the East, and he had a hard time convincing these battalion guys that he was the one running the show in California. So they clash. But then rumors, more tales start to get back to Utah now about Sam. 
So then fast forward to 1848 and there's an emigrant company getting ready to go there. And a woman named Susan Eliza Savage comes up in a discussion. And Brannon claims that she had been seduced by this other guy. But the, the guy that reports this meeting says that Brannon had probably seduced her himself and was trying to shift blame to the other guy. So there's, there's you know, Sam and women were bad news. And then we've got some financial things that crop up. And so the, the Mormon guys are there in the gold fields and they're hitting it big. And it's kind of a gray area. How much do they need to send back to Brigham? And Brigham is, of course, very concerned about this. And you get a pretty famous exchange. It's probably apocryphal to some degree, but Brandon responds to Brigham Young saying, you go back and tell Brigham that I'll give up the Lord's money when he sends me in a receipt signed by the Lord and no sooner. Um, That's a bold move. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. Will, um, Will Bagley goes through where the tale probably started and how it spread and how it was used. And the truth of it is probably that the apostles that are there. So you've got um, Amos Lyman's there and Chelsea Rich is there for a time. They're probably more responsible for collecting tithing and, you know, the financial matters, but certainly finances crop up and conflicts come to a head. And Brandon is finally, no reinstatement this time. Um, Parley P. Pratt's made his way there by now. And in 1851, Brandon is finally excommunicated. And the notice that they published said it was because of, quote, a general course of unchristian-like conduct, neglect of duty, and combining with lawless assemblies to commit murder and other crimes. So uh, California is a wild place. And you hear both earlier on and then later as San Bernardino gets going, there's there's some... There's some unsavory elements there, and apparently Sam was part and parcel with them. So as uh, a side note, I'm watching – I'm really late to the party, but I'm watching the AMC show Hell on Wheels. It's a historical fiction about the railroad, and they feature a lot of Mormons in it. And it's interesting to see how they portray Mormons as these Wild West characters helping settle the frontier. And I really see Sam Brannon as one of these guys. He's the guy that could sit at your dinner table and charm you and and seem like a good, righteous man, but he could, you know, kill someone if he had to or do something ruthless or take their money if he wanted to. Yep. Yeah, there's there's certainly charisma there. I mean, Sam, by the end of his life, I mean, blows most of it, but I, at a time, he's just rich as get, all get out. And, uh, yeah, he uh, he definitely shifts here when he's excommunicated. I mean, he's he's full blown California Sam now. So he's you know he he sets up uh, a resort there at Calistoga, Goldfields. Uh, he's got his hand in everything. Um, Liza will eventually divorce him in 1868. She gets, I think it was like five hundred thousand dollars in a settlement. I mean, just an incredible amount of money. Takes the kids and goes to Europe. And uh, the, the few hints that we get is that um, he will blow money on actresses. And, yeah, he's just, just kind of a scumbag in California. And a few years before he dies, he moves down to Mexico, and he'll marry one last time to uh, a, quote, handsome, intelligent, and wealthy widow. But, uh, again, not much known about her, and he dies 
1889, pretty much penniless down in Mexico. And he's not even buried until I think a year later, they get him buried in a family vault back in California. So yeah, he, uh, he lived big and died hard. So Sam was a, he was, he's a character. He's a, a colorful complex. Yeah. He's, he's a tough one to, to figure out. And, and yeah, in California, he's very famous and most people would have no idea that he has this very core influential Mormon past that he just kind of leaves behind. So, yeah, he's attributed to being one of the, you know, settlers of California, of San Francisco, being very prominent there. But what's interesting is at the time, and I think it's hard for me to remember because I am so Mormon and this history that I do as some Mormon, being Mormon in Sam Brannon's position in somewhere like California was not something that a lot of people bragged about. <laughs> so it's not something that would have given him credibility that in, in my opinion, don't you think that's true, Brian? Sure. Well, and in those early years, they're really wrestling with what do we do with wealth? I mean, and, and, and Brigham, he can't really make up his mind either. So, you know, we, do we send people to the gold fields? No, no, no. The, you know, mining is bad. Mining is the devil. We need to stay here. So yeah, he's, he's really conflicted too, as to how to deal with it. So yeah, their Mormonism is, uh, yeah, it does. The other guys that are making their way to California, Mormonism is not going to make any friends with them. So and yeah, doesn't he have a falling out with Brigham over bringing more Mormons to California? Doesn't he? I think in 1847, he travels to meet with Brigham Young in Wyoming and says, hey, bring more people across. This was one of Hastings' ideas that I talked One of his ideas was to bring um, more people over. Hastings believed that if if you just crowded California with people, then you wouldn't have to have a blood war with any of the Indians there, but Brigham Young rejects this, right? Yeah. And, uh, had it turned out differently, if Sam had been a little more persuasive, maybe we could have visited Wilford Woods museum last night in, uh, you know, Newport beach or something. So yeah, we should have listened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mormonism could have turned out very differently if, uh, if that discussion had been, had a different result. Well, sure. I love Joe Geisner's, um, idea that if you're in California, it's Bran and Zion. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah. California is very troublesome and, and that doesn't go away when Brandon's excommunicated. I mean, um, Brigham does not like when Lyman and, and Rich put together a company to go start San Bernardino. They don't have any problem finding people that, uh, maybe think that desert Zion isn't so great as a uh, beach Zion. So, yeah, California is a is a tough one for years to come. Well, is there anything else you want to say about Brandon? We're bringing him him in because he really does set the stage for the tone of this Boston Mormons. So we're going to talk about other characters, but Sam Brandon is someone that everybody should know about if they're interested in Mormon history. Yeah, I mean, at the time he was just so famous and so influential, and as very often happens, once they get excommunicated. They get kind of written out of the consciousness. So, uh, you know, he, Sam's probably more famous by far in California than he is with Mormons. And he had a long Mormon career. So, yeah, two lives he led. 
Okay, well, Brian, thank you. And we're going to have you come back to talk about William Smith, Joseph Smith's brother, who Sam is just, Sam Bryan is just sort of an appetizer for the shenanigans that we're going to talk about with William Smith. Oh, man. Yeah. If your appetite's whetted with Sam, stay tuned because William is pretty entertaining himself. Okay, well, thanks for coming on, Brian. You got it. Always good to be here. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>